If your happy ending is no more joint pain, please try Sierra Sil with a money-back guarantee. It's all-natural joint pain relief that's changed our lives. Sierra, like the mountains, and Sil, like silicon. Go to sierrasil.com. Use the code DRIFT for 10% off. Hello, I'm Erin, and welcome to Drift, made possible by Envy Pillow. Created by Kathy and Kim, Canadian registered nurses who have partnered here with me. I've rested my weary head on an Envy Pillow for mm, about 20 years now. It started because of stress-related neck pain, and I've been in love ever since. Learn more in the morning at Envy, E-N-V-Y. Pillow.com. We have many stories here that are fairy tales, and as such, tend to have knights in shining armor or princesses waiting for their true love. This, however, is a more modern take on love. And honestly, I adore this story, tailored here especially for you for Drift. Written by Mary Eleanor Wilkins Freeman. This is a beautiful tale of finding peace in solitude, in one's own company. First, I'm going to invite you to just take in a deep breath. And release. Now, let yourself feel heavy. Just completely relaxed, wherever this story finds you with one more inhale. And now, as you exhale, think these words. I am safe. I am loved. I am at peace. And we shall begin. It was late in the afternoon, and the light was fading. There was a difference in the look of the tree shadows out in the yard. Somewhere in the distance, cows were lowing, and a little bell was tinkling. Now and then, a farm wagon rumbled by, and the dust flew. Some blue-shirted workers with shovels over their shoulders plodded past. Little swarms of flies were dancing up and down before the people's faces in the soft air. This peaceful commotion had also fallen over Louisa Ellis. She'd been sewing at her sitting room window all afternoon. Now she quilted her needle carefully into her work, which she folded precisely and laid in a basket with her thimble and thread and scissors. Louisa Ellis could not remember ever being without these tools, which had become from long use and constant association, a very part of her personality. Louisa tied a green apron round her waist and got out a flat straw hat with a green ribbon. Then she went into the garden with a small blue crockery bowl to pick some currants for her tea. After the currants were chosen, she sat on the back doorstep and stemmed them collecting the stems carefully in her apron to later throw to the hens. 
Louisa was slow and still in her movements. It took her a long time to prepare her tea. But when it was ready, she laid it out with as much grace as if she had been her own guest. The small square table stood exactly in the center of the kitchen and was covered with a starched linen cloth whose border pattern of flowers glistened. Louisa had a thick linen napkin on her tea tray, where were arranged a cut glass tumbler full of teaspoons, a silver cream pitcher, a china sugar bowl, and one pink china cup and saucer. Louisa used china every day, something none of her neighbors did. They whispered about it among themselves. Their daily tables were laid with common crockery. Their sets of best china stayed in the closet, and Louisa Ellis was no richer nor better bred than they. Still, she would use the china. After tea, she filled the plate with nicely baked thin corn cakes and carried them out into the backyard. Caesar, she called, Caesar. There was a bit of a rush and the clank of a chain, and a large yellow and white dog appeared at the door of his tiny hut, which was half hidden among the tall grasses and flowers. Louisa patted him and gave him the corn cakes. Then she returned to the house. After washing up, she noticed that the twilight had deepened. Louisa took off her green gingham apron, disclosing a shorter one of pink and white print. She lit her lamp and sat down again with her sewing. In about half an hour, Joe Daggett came. She heard his heavy step on the walk and rose and took off her pink and white apron. Under that was still another, white linen, with a tiny embroidered edging on the bottom. That was Louisa's company apron. She never wore it without her calico sewing apron over it, unless she had a guest. She had barely folded the pink and white one with methodical haste and laid it in a table drawer when the door opened and Joe Daggett entered. He seemed to fill up the whole room, a little yellow canary that had been asleep in his green cage at the south window, woke up and fluttered wildly. He always did so when Joe Daggett came into the room. Good evening, said Louisa. She extended her hand with a kind of solemn friendliness. Good evening, Louisa, returned the man in a loud voice. She placed a chair for him, and they sat facing each other with the table between them. He sat bolt upright, glancing with a good-humored uneasiness around the room. She sat gently but straight as a board, folding her slender hands in her white linen lap. Been a pleasant day, remarked Daggett. Real pleasant, Louisa assented softly. Have you been haying? She asked after a while. Yes, I've been haying all day, down in the ten-acre lot. Pretty hot work. It must be. Is your mother well today? Yes, mother's pretty well. I suppose Lily Dyer's with her now. 
Daggett flushed. Yes, she's with her, he answered slowly. He was not very young, but there was a boyish look about his large face. Louisa was not quite as old as he. Her face was fairer and smoother, but she gave people the impression of being older. I suppose she's a good deal of help to your mother, she said further. I guess she is. I don't know how mother would get along without her, said Daggett with a sort of embarrassed warmth. She looks like a real capable girl. She's pretty looking, too, remarked Louisa. Yes, she is pretty fair looking. Daggett began poking through the books on the table. There was a red square autograph album and a few other books that had belonged to Louisa's mother. He picked them up one after the other and opened them, then laid them down again. Louisa watched with mild uneasiness. Finally, she rose and changed the position of the books, putting the album underneath the way it had been arranged in the first place. Daggett gave an awkward little laugh. Now, what difference did it make which book was on top, said he. Louisa looked at him with a deprecating smile. I always keep them that way, murmured she. You're really something, said Daggett, trying to laugh again. His large face was flushed. He stayed another hour. Then, as he began to leave, he stumbled over a rug and trying to recover himself hit Louisa's work basket on the table and knocked it to the floor. He looked at Louisa, then at the rolling spools. Awkwardly, he started to go toward them, but she said, never mind, I'll pick them up after you're gone. Joe Daggett left the house feeling about as an innocent and perfectly well-intentioned bear after his exit from a china shop. Louisa, on her part, felt much as the kind-hearted, long-suffering owner of the china shop might have done after the bear had lumbered off. She tied on the pink, then the green apron, picked up all the scattered treasures, and replaced them in her work basket, and straightened the rug. Then she set her lamp on the floor and began sharply examining the carpet even rubbing her fingers over it. He's tracked in a good deal of dust. I thought he must have. Louisa got a dustpan and brush and swept Joe Daggett's track carefully. Ever loyal, Joe came twice a week to see Louisa Ellis, and every time, sitting there in her delicately sweet room, he felt as if surrounded by a hedge of lace. He was afraid to move in case he should put a clumsy foot or hand through the fairy web. And he had always thought that Louisa was watching fearfully that he might. Still, the lace and Louisa commanded his perfect respect, patience, and loyalty. They were to be married in a month after a courtship which had lasted for a matter of 15 years. For 14 of those, the two had not once seen each other, and they had seldom exchanged letters. Joe had gone to Australia to make his fortune. 
He would have stayed 50 years if it had taken that long and come home old and ailing or never come home at all to marry Louisa. But he made his fortune in those 14 years, and now he had come home to marry the woman who had been patiently and unquestioningly waiting for him all that time. In those years, much had happened. Louisa's mother and brother had died, and she was all alone in the world. But the greatest happening of all, a subtle happening, which both were too simple to understand. Louisa's feet had turned into a path, smooth maybe, under a calm, serene sky, but so straight and unswerving that it could only meet the end at her grave, and so narrow that there was no room for anyone at her side. Louisa's first emotion when Joe Daggett came home and he had not told her he was coming was a bit of anger, although she would not admit it to herself, and he never dreamed of it. Fifteen years ago, she had been in love with him, at least she considered herself to be. Louisa's mother, with her calm wisdom, had advised her daughter when Joe Daggett presented himself, and Louisa accepted him with no hesitation. He was the first love she had ever had. She had been faithful to him all these years. She had never dreamed of the possibility of marrying anyone else. Her life, especially for the last seven years, had been full of a pleasant peace. She had never felt discontented nor impatient over her lover's absence. Still, she had always looked forward to his return and their marriage as the inevitable conclusion of things. However, she had fallen into a way of placing it so far in the future that it was almost as though it was happening in someone else's life. Joe's consternation came later. He eyed Louisa with an instant confirmation of his old admiration. She had changed but little. She still kept her pretty manner and soft grace and was, he considered, every whit as attractive as ever. As for himself, his fortune-seeking was done, and the old winds of romance whistled as loud and sweet as ever through his ears. All the song was about Louisa. For a long time, he held a loyal belief that he heard it still. But finally, it seemed to him that although the winds sang always that one song, it had another name. But for Louisa, the wind had never more than murmured. Now it had gone down, and everything was still. She listened for a little while with half-wistful attention. Then she turned quietly away and went to work on her wedding clothes. Joe had made some extensive and quite magnificent alterations in his house. It was the old homestead the newly married couple would live there. For Joe could not desert his mother, who refused to leave her old home. So Louisa 
must leave hers. Every morning, rising and going about among her neat maidenly possessions, she felt as one looking her last upon the faces of dear friends. It was true that she could take some with her, but robbed of their old environments, they would almost cease to be themselves. Then there were some peculiar features of her happy, solitary life, which she would probably have to give up altogether. Sterner tasks would probably devolve upon her. There would be a large house to care for. There would be company to entertain. There would be Joe's rigorous and feeble old mother to wait upon, and it would not look right to keep more than one servant. Louisa had a still and loved to distill sweet and aromatic essences from roses and peppermint and spearmint. By and by, her still must be laid away. Her store of essences was already considerable, and there would be no time for her to distill just for the mere pleasure of it. Joe's mother had already hinted her opinion that it was a foolish pastime. Joe's mother, domineering, shrewd old matron that she was, even in her old age, and very likely even Joe himself, with his honest, masculine rudeness, would laugh and frown down all these pretty but senseless things. Louisa had almost the enthusiasm of an artist over the mere order and cleanliness of her solitary home. She had throbs of genuine triumph at the sight of the window panes, which she had polished until they shone like jewels. She gloated gently over her orderly bureau drawers with their exquisitely folded contents, redolent with lavender and sweet clover and purity. She had visions of coarse masculine belongings strewn about in endless litter, of dust and disorder arising necessarily from a coarse masculine presence in the midst of all this delicate harmony. Among her forebodings of disturbance was with regard to Caesar. Caesar was a veritable hermit of a dog. For the greater part of his life, he had dwelt in his secluded hut, shut out from the society of his kind and all innocent canine joys. And it was all on account of a sin committed when hardly out of his puppyhood. Old Caesar seldom lifted up his voice in a growl or a bark. He was fat and sleepy. There were yellow rings which looked like spectacles around his dim old eyes. But there was a neighbor who bore on his hand the imprint of several of Caesar's sharp, white, youthful teeth. And for that, he had lived at the end of a chain, all alone in a little hut for fourteen years. The neighbor had demanded either Caesar's death or complete ostracism. So Louisa's brother, to whom the dog had belonged, had built him his little kennel and tied him up. It was now fourteen years since, in a flood of youthful spirits, he had inflicted that memorable bite. And with the exception of short excursions, 
always at the end of a chain, under the strict guardianship of his master, or Louisa, the old dog had remained a close prisoner. He was regarded by all the children in the village and by many adults as a very monster of ferocity. Mothers warned their children not to go too near to him, and the children listened and believed greedily with a fascinated appetite for terror. Wayfarers chancing into Louisa's yard eyed him with respect and inquired if the chain were stout. Caesar at large might have seemed a very ordinary dog and excited no comment whatever. Chained, his reputation overshadowed him. Joe Daggett, however, with his good-humored sense and shrewdness, saw him as he was. He strode valiantly up to him and patted him on the head, in spite of Louisa's soft clamor of warning, and even attempted to set him loose. Louisa grew so alarmed that he desisted, but kept denouncing his opinion in the matter, quite forcibly. There ain't a better-natured dog in town, he would say, and it's downright cruel to keep him tied up there. Someday, I'm gonna take him out. Louisa had very little hope that he would not. She was herself so fond of the old dog, because he had belonged to her dead brother, and he was always very gentle with her. Still, she had great faith in his ferocity and warned people not to go too near him. She fed him on a humble fare of corn mush and cakes and never fired his dangerous temper with a diet of flesh and bones. Louisa looked at the old dog munching his simple fare and thought of her approaching marriage and trembled. Still no anticipation of disorder and confusion in lieu of sweet peace and harmony. No forebodings of Caesar on the rampage, no wild fluttering of her little yellow canary were enough to make her break Joe's heart. After all, it was a Tuesday evening, and the wedding was to be a week from Wednesday. There was a full moon that night. About nine o'clock, Louisa strolled down the road a little way. She sat down on the wall and looked about her with mildly sorrowful reflectiveness. Tall shrubs of blueberry and meadow sweet, all woven together and tangled with blackberry vines, shut her in on either side. She sat there for some time, but just as she was thinking of rising, she heard footsteps and low voices and remained quiet. It was a lonely place, and she felt a bit timid. She thought she would keep still in the shadow, and whoever they might be would pass her. But just before they reached her, the voices and footsteps stopped. She understood that their owners had also found seats upon the stone wall. She was wondering if she could not steal away unobserved. But when the voice broke the stillness, it was Joe Daggett's. She sat still and listened. The voice was announced by a loud sigh. Well, said Daggett, you've made up your mind then, I suppose. Yes, returned another voice. I'm going day after tomorrow 
That's Lily Dyer, thought Louisa to herself. The voice embodied itself. In her mind, she saw a girl, tall and full-figured, with a firm, fair face, looking fairer and firmer in the moonlight. Her strong yellow hair braided in a close knot, a girl full of a calm, rustic strength and bloom, with a masterful way which might have beseemed a princess. Lily Dyer was a favorite with the village folk. She had just the qualities to arouse the admiration. She was good and handsome and smart. Louisa had often heard her praises sounded. Well, said Joe Daggett, I ain't got a word to say. I don't know what you could say, returned Lily. Then there was a silence. I ain't sorry, he began at last, that that happened yesterday, that we kind of let on how we felt to each other. I guess it's just as well we knew. Of course, I can't do anything different. I'm going right on and get married next week. I ain't going back on a woman that's waited for me 14 years and break her heart. If you should jilt her tomorrow, I wouldn't have you, spoke up the girl with sudden vehemence. Well, I ain't gonna give you the chance, said he. But I don't believe you would, either. You'd see I wouldn't. Honor's honor, and right's right. And I'd never think anything of any man that went against him, for me or any other girl. You'd find that out, Joe Daggett. I'm sorry you feel as if you must go away, said Joe, but I guess it's best. Suddenly, Joe's voice got an undertone of tenderness. Say, Lily, I'll get along well enough myself, but I can't bear to think, will you be all right? Well, I won't fret much over a married man. Well, I hope you won't. God knows I do. And I hope... One of these days, you'll come across somebody else. I don't see any reason why I shouldn't. Suddenly, her tone changed. She spoke in a sweet, clear voice, so loud that she could have been heard across the street. No, Joe Daggett, she said. I'll never marry any other man as long as I live. I've got good sense, and I ain't going to be breaking my heart nor making a fool of myself, but I'm never going to be married. You can be sure of that. I ain't that sort of girl to feel this way twice. Louisa heard an exclamation and a soft commotion behind the bushes. Then Lily spoke again. The voice sounded as if she had risen. We've stayed here long enough. I'm going home. Louisa sat there in a daze listening to their retreating steps. After a while, she got up and slunk softly home herself. The next day, she did her housework methodically, but she did not sew on her wedding clothes. She sat at her window and meditated. In the evening, Joe came. Louisa Ellis had never known that she had any diplomacy in her. But when she came to look for it that night, she found it. Even now, she could hardly believe that she had heard what she heard. 
and that she would not do Joe a terrible injury should she break their engagement. She wanted to hear how he felt about it all, but without giving away her own inclinations in the matter. She did it successfully, and they finally came to an understanding. But it was a difficult thing, for he was as afraid of betraying his own feelings as she. She never mentioned Lily Dyer. She simply said that while she had no cause of complaint against him, she had lived so long in one way that she shrank from making a change. Well, I never shrank, Louisa, said Daggett. I'm going to be honest enough to say that I think maybe it is better this way. But if you had wanted to keep on, I'd have stuck to you till my dying day. I hope you know that. Yes, I do, said she. That night, she and Joe parted more tenderly than they had done for a long time. Standing in the door, holding each other's hands, a last great wave of regretful memory swept over them. Well, this ain't the way we've thought it was all going to end, is it, Louisa? said Joe. She shook her head. There was a little quiver on her placid face. You let me know if there's ever anything I can do for you, said he. I ain't ever gonna forget you, Louisa. Then he kissed her and went down the path. Louisa, all alone by herself that night, wept a little. She hardly knew why. But on waking, she felt like a queen who, after fearing that her domain was to be wrested away from her, sees it firmly insured in her possession. Now the tall weeds and grasses might cluster around Caesar's hermit hut, and the snow might fall on its roof, year in and year out. But he never would go on a rampage through the unguarded village. Now the little canary might turn itself into a peaceful yellow ball night after night, and have no need to wake and flutter with wild terror against its bars. Louisa could distill roses and dust and polish and fold away in lavender as long as she liked. That afternoon, she sat with her needlework at the window and felt fairly steeped in peace. Lily Dyer, tall and erect and blooming, went past. But she felt no unease. Louisa Ellis gazed ahead through a long reach of future days, strung together like pearls in a rosary, every one like the others, and all smooth and flawless and innocent. Her heart went up in thankfulness. Outside was the fiery summer afternoon. The air was filled with the sounds of the busy harvest of men and birds and bees. And there Louisa sat, prayerfully numbering her days like an uncloistered nun. And with those gentle thoughts of serenity, solitude, 
meditation, and deep comfort. I wish you a good night and sweet dreams. <laughs>